We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month which obviously no pressure whatever you've got we are so appreciative to have but we have awesome gifts for you if you want a hand addressed letter from morgan and isabeau maybe with some special whoa stickers other merch just uh visit our patreon we are womance on patreon or is it patreon.com forward slash womance we would be very proud to call you one of our patrons I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About warm, fuzzy feelings of the thick sock kind and of the falling in love kind. About drinking cider. About handicrafts. About holding hands. About longing. About... Having good family members who care about you in your life. About understanding history as populated by diverse identities. Uh, But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. (laughs) This week, we're talking about a particular little gem of a novella for this uh, Novella November. Oh shoot! What a good idea. I'm. I think we should definitely read a novella next. <laughs> <laughs> novella November. Yep, there it is. It's a theme now. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> the Craft of Love by E. E. Ottoman. I can't remember whose turn it is to read the back of the book. I believe it is mine. When professional respect leads to something more. Benjamin Lewis has created a life for himself as one of the most respected silversmiths and engravers in New York City. For Benjamin, his work is his passion, and he has never sought out companionship beyond the close ties of family. Stumbling across dresses sewn by his late mother, however, reawakens painful memories from his past. Now he's determined to forge something beautiful from the remains of the life and identity he left behind. In the process, he discovers stunning and fiercely intelligent Miss Quincy, who might just have the power to tempt him out of his quiet isolation. Remembrance Quincy's talent is as undeniable as her needlework is exquisite. She has made a name for herself, crafting quilts and embroidery pieces for all the wealthiest ladies in the city. When soft-spoken yet charming Mr. Lewis comes to her with a particular project in mind, she's intrigued both by his artistic design and by the man himself. He treats her like an equal, values her work, and makes her smile. But Remembrance already gave her heart away once. Now, can she risk doing it again? So a couple, one thing that is missing from that back of the book is our setting, which is New York City, 1831. 1831. It has like, okay, just to jump right into it, this is, I think, a perfect November novella. Agreed. Because um, it's so cozy. Coziest. And I tend to really enjoy imagining urban places as like, baby urban places, proto-urban spaces, Mm -hmm. and thinking about New York City as like a seaside village almost is uh, endlessly charming to me. Um, Like I love books with this particular setting and uh, was delighted when you, when I opened it up. The cover is adorable, and that's basically where the cose begins, like smack dab on this little cross-stitch cover, and then it just like goes from there. As Morgan has beautifully described for you, we're in a baby proto-NYC, so remarkably people like live above their stores and have alleys 
they're still throwing trash in the road, but you can smell the harbor basically from the whole island of Manhattan, which just sounds really nice. Even cozier for me, new mom that I am, uh, the opening scene (laughs) is our main character, Benjamin being left at home by his sister to take care of the new baby, Eli. And uh, we get a ye old timey discussion of tummy time, which was adorable. <laughs> what? Was tummy time a thing back then? I don't know if it was or not, uh, but he puts the rattle in front of his nephew, Eli, and then watches as Eli tries to squirm for it and then, like, moves it a little bit further and, like, is forcing Eli to do tummy time. And there's just, like, this real quiet joy of watching an uncle be really intimately trusted and, like, intimately in the parenting of his nephew, Eli. And that goes throughout the whole novella. And I was very moved that the for such a short story, um, it really took mm-hmm. its time to establish what kind of family dynamic was in the home that Benjamin lived in. Yeah. And it also, you get a pretty clear idea about Remembrance's family as well. We just get one scene with her sister, but we hear about her communicating with her mother. Mm-hmm. And she also has like personal reflections that she shares with Benjamin over the course of the text. They are two like fully realized characters. That is like a low bar, I think, but it's a bar I'm excited to see cleared nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. I found this book, I, I've. This particular setting, proto New York City, is one of, I think, my cozier settings, or I just always associate it that way. But I also think, you know, the nature of the work our main characters engage in. Benjamin is a silversmith, and Remembrance, uh, she's a quilt maker. And, you know, hand- handicrafts, I think, are inherently cozy. And I was reading this, and I, and they even drink, like, hot apple cider at one point. At multiple points, they drink hot apple cider, which I thought was amazing. And they, like, go to lectures, which also feels very cozy. Well, it talks about how it's too dang hot in the lecture. Right. <laughs> that his, <laughs> his cider goes to room temperature, and he drinks it anyway. But there's even a scene that I, like, this book is so rich in detail, and I think fully realized is mm-hmm. is a low bar to clear, but this book does it so well that I want to, like, point it out. Because, as you said, Remembrance does these handicrafts, but there's a scene where she's been working all day, and so her hands hurt, and so she gets a hot brick out of the fire and wraps a cloth around it and then holds it yeah. in her hands. And it had literally never occurred to me as a human being that, of course, someone who sewed 12 hours a day would have hurting hands. And how would you solve a problem like that before readily available analgesics? You would put something warm and comforting wrapped in a flannel in your hand and hold it. And then she just brings it to her chest while she thinks fondly of Benjamin. And I was like, God Damn it, is this good. Well, not to be a downer, but she warms the brick and wraps it in a flannel so that she can put it in her bed to warm her bed. And she just happens to find the transference time to be comforting. (laughs) Yeah, which is awesome. So it made me think about, like, this is obviously a cozy book, but it's very cozy. Like, it's on the nose, right? Like, this is meant to, I think it's intentionally very cozy. Mm Mm-hmm. And it made me think about like what's largely considered cozy reads and how I don't really identify with it. Like I do identify with this sort of thing. Like a cozy read that comes to mind is the Little House on the Prairie Christmas book. What's a cozy read to you? Like not just romance, obviously, because Little House on the Prairie is. (laughs) But what's like an example of a book that you consider to be a personal like cozy read? Hmm. That's a really good question. I mean, we're heading into Christmas season. I saw my first Christmas tree out in public today. Um, so a Christmas Carol is a cozy read for me every year. Yeah. When I think of cozy read, I think and it I think it has to do with its size, right? Like the 
Little House on the Prairie Christmas one is one of the smaller of the series. Mm, that's a really good point, yeah. I think you have to be able to read it in a sitting. Mm, yeah, or over the co- course of like a weekend at grandma's house. Yeah. I think one of the kinds of books that gets cited all the time, right? People talk about cozy mysteries and they always talk about Agatha Christie novels. I have never found those particularly cozy. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, they just always open with like a violent death. (laughs) They do. You know, (laughs) I don't know. I guess I was just hoping that you would find those cozy and you could explain it to me. But instead I find that we're in the same boat, maybe. Yeah, I don't find mysteries cozy. I will say that my mother-in-law certainly does. Um, She loves sitting in front of a fire and reading a mystery novel, Agatha Christie being a particular favorite. But she also, like, one of her pandemic projects was to reread the entire Nancy Drew series. What? Yeah. Like, all 190 books. How? Wow. I wonder what it's like to read those as an adult. I don't know. Especially like the older ones that were like originally published in like the 40s and 50s. I remember Nancy Drew talking a lot about her outfits. Having never read a Nancy Drew because I don't really like mysteries. (laughs) What are the reasons that people cite mysteries, Agatha Christie mysteries as being like comforting is because you know how they're going to end. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, but like, (laughs) to what? (laughs) Now we know that they stabbed their grandmother in the throat for money or something. (laughs) Right. That doesn't seem very comforting. But like this, where like two people slowly court each other, then, you know, the text concludes with a, a very sensual kiss. But not until the very last two pages, right? Like, I find that comforting. But that doesn't that seem like no duh? Of course that's comforting. As do I. Of course that's cozy. I think we're probably circling something around what makes something cozy and comforting versus boring, right? And I think that like people who like mystery and don't necessarily like romance mm. are gonna say something like, "Well, it's formulaic, mm. and obviously we can just bat that little." birdie right back across the net because mysteries are obviously formulaic. We all know how it's going to end. It's going to solve, right? Both of them in the Venn diagram of mystery and romance. Both people or both genres have a lot of tea drinking or hot drinks in general, like toddies. (sighs) And And I think it might have to maneuver then around what is comforting and cozy about formula. And this makes me think in particular about ritual. Hmm. Right? Because if you can read it over a long weekend at grandma's, you can pick it up and you can put it down, which means that you can be immersed in it without feeling put upon if you're taken out. You broadly know the strokes, but are ready to be surprised by anything that, you know, bends the form a little bit or even doesn't just, you know, does the form in a new way. And the other part of ritual, I think, is like, the you know how one gets cozy when one cozies up to a read like what are you drinking what are you wearing how are you situated where are you situated and so when you asked immediately about like what's a cozy read for me and I said a Christmas Carol it's because I actually listened to it Sir Patrick Stewart does an incredible rendition and I put myself on the couch and I have mulled wine and I like I wrap presents while I listen to it and that's why it's a cozy ritual for me and I you know that one's obviously very seasonal but I think there is a ritual to cozy but did you do any ritual cozy stuff while you were reading this book I absolutely did I did not but I still found it to be cozy yeah, I read this in front of our little gas stove. Um, I listened to it while rocking my baby, which is cozy in and of itself. And I put on my like warm slippers and I was wearing a flannel. Like I felt cozy while reading this cozy read. Uh, I guess like incidentally, the weather got more autumnal while we were reading. But mm-hmm. I don't. Well, this is kind of an insistently cozy book. And maybe like some of that can get f- you're saying with cozy mystery has to do with rather than the content something being comforting inherently not comforting but like cozy more specifically has to do with ritual 
I think, yeah, this book just like really insists upon it. And I think it is its own cozy ritual um, because of that. I think this this book is also speaks into that space because there's so many rituals in it. Like the ritual of tea, the drawing room. I think that's also one of the nice things about historicals in general. It really gives you a playbook for courting. Like you don't have to invent like crazy dates. Yeah. But so much of romance is like subverting the courting, right? Like it's interesting because they're not courting normally, right? This, unlike that, is uh, very invested in like proper courtship. And so the moments that it subverts proper courtship the characters know that they're subverting it which makes it all the more tingly what would be an example of uh subverting so in 1831 a man is not supposed to touch an unmarried woman's bare hand and so when they barehandedly hold each other's hands there's like this you know electricity between them and he had uh, grabbed her hand kind of unthinkingly um, and then realized what he'd done. And then, like, they were holding hands. And, like, that's just so nice. I think, yeah, the the other interesting thing about those subversions is that they're justified in the character's internality as being, like, semi, at least semi-related to trade. Like, she can have mm-hmm. her patron... Right, because Benjamin is buying a quilt from, is commissioning a quilt from Remembrance. So she can have her male patron at her house after the sun goes down by himself on occasion, and it doesn't raise any eyebrows. So in a lot of historical romance, the thing that is interesting about courtship is how it's subverted. But it's always being subverted by like well-to-do people who don't have similar kind of outs. Mm-hmm. But I think working class romance, right? I think we have like a single narrative about what it was like to be working class historically, and it's miserable. Yeah. But in fact, <laughs> you know, people do still fall in love when they're very tired and working all the time, right? We know that because we do it. And I think... There's a lot more interesting stuff going on that can say more about a historical era because there isn't this, like, rigidity that I think leads to a a fixation on precedent rather than, like, the actual moment, the actual historic moment. Sometimes I think it's hard to tell the difference between, like, a historic... a Regency romance and a Victorian romance, you know, until someone mentions a dress. But reading this was very, it was very easy to feel that like singular place in time. And it was like one of those transporting historical romances where you got a very specific sense of what's going on. Like, Changes in in labor Uh. laws are on the cusp, on the horizon. Um, The middle class is forming. What day-to-day life looks like for this new middle class is also changing. This is very particular to the year that it's set in. And I think that's – I think we read – lately I feel like there's been a trend towards working class romance, but then you find out that it's like the person is actually just like a Rockefeller, and that's not the same. (laughs) And I think the only other example that for me immediately comes to mind that we've read that kind of works truly as a working class romance like this one does is – the Jade Temptress. Mm-hmm. But this is obviously a far less angsty <laughs> because The Jade Temptress is a very angsty book. Mm-hmm. This is almost no angst and certainly not around their main couple. It's just uh, pleasant. But it's 105 pages and we get all of that kind of particular richness. And I think it's able to do that in 105 pages because our main characters are so plugged into the moment and the world that they're a part of. 
Which I don't really think you can do if you're doing gentry. Well, I think that's really interesting, especially when you think about this moment in history and this time where it's like, you're right, money in its own way, it, it certainly is protection, but it's also a kind of stagnation. Like the 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 way in which the middle class built itself in the 1800s was amazing and in large part because of technology. And this book spends not a little bit of time talking about how handwoven fabrics are just not profitable anymore and that because people are coming and there are more bankers and there are more artisans building this new class that they want the trappings of gentry in these ways that have to be more readily reproducible. And so that breeds its own kind of discussion, as you said, about labor. And this book does such a good job, and it does it at every turn, right? When Benjamin comes to Remembrance's shop with the commission and his sketches for what he's thinking of for this quilt... Uh, She says, oh, this is an old style and like immediately evokes what would have been Benjamin's mother's contemporaneous time when she was a young person, which would have been like 30 or 40 years before this, like at the turn of that of the 18th into the 19th century. And so you had these like big lush leaves and big flowers. And then just in the moment of her looking at that pattern, she says it's not the same sort of small florals that are much more romantic in keeping with the time that we're currently in. And just that kind of this this is how we're going to talk about this moment just as separated from the one before it by these types of things really puts you it roots you in this moment as you said and i and i think the fact that this text took the time to do that in every little piece like even the buttons on his formal coat and how he's wearing them and like how big her hoop skirt was all of those details, and it, it doesn't, you know, it's, I don't think it was too heavy with them, but just enough to really root us in place and time. Fancy pants historicals want to talk about things like, for example, if, you know, a duke wanted to talk about the fact that uh, factory seamstresses are organizing, they would have to, like, deign to care And so there would have to be, like, all of this character building around, like, I've always had a passion for fiber arts and (laughs) machinery. And now to hear of young women, right? Whereas, like, it actually affects uh, remembrances day to day. Mm -hmm. And so she's able to talk about it. But also talking about, like, um, abolition happening. What's interesting about this book is, like, I'm struck by how, like, not angsty it is, even though it's a very, it's not afraid of politic. Um, And there's a lot of stuff going on. Like, so Remembrance is herself a very engaged citizen. She doesn't consider her work, she specifically says she doesn't consider her work to be uh, as important politically to her as her life as a consumer like she doesn't have sugar because of slavery and won't use indigo won't use cotton right and oh our our main character benjamin is a trans man that's also worth noting (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and remembrance's previous relationship with with another uh woman a romantic relationship was with another woman who uh, left her to, you know, get married. Very portrait of a lady on fire. Decided to move on and Remembrance herself has dis- previously decided that she could not be the kind of person to have that uh, sort of life, getting married and settling down. And in all of this, this book is resistant to being the kind of polemic... <laughs> soap boxy type text that I think a lot of other romances with this kind of framework would end up being. Yeah, the surprisingly little angst and the mover of the plot is not the fact that Benjamin is a trans man or that Remembrance had a former relationship with a woman. Those are incidental pieces of their history and character that do not... 
are not the central problem. Yeah, they inform who the characters are and they help us to understand the characters. Mm -hmm. And in fact, kind of set them on this journey towards one another because Benjamin is getting some dresses that his mother made for him turned into a quilt instead. Um, His mother is passed on. He finds these quilts, uh, these quilts, these dresses hidden in a chest that his sister had put away. And he's like, I'm going to turn these into something that is useful for me now for who I am sort of how well I guess remembrance uh comes over to ask Georgiana Benjamin's sister to make her some lace be a lace lady for her everybody's everybody's an artisan in this group yeah because Georgiana's husband is also uh Benjamin's partner in the silversmith business but again that just creates this sense of place in time where Remembrance has a problem. Her merchant is taking the her suppliers taking advantage of her and like not coming in and not being reliable. So she's finally like worked up enough to just cut ties with the supplier. So now she has to find all new supplies, which is how she ends up in Georgiana's parlor asking her to do skeins of lace. It, it roots itself in place and time. It's very grounded. Very grounded, you know. Um, and that's part of the reason that it's so lovely. And so like the thing that creates obstacles for our characters is their own internality you know benjamin's never pursued a romantic relationship and feels incredibly self-conscious at times but really wants to pursue remembrance and remembrance had this heartbreak so she doesn't want to trust or love again in the same way but like it's all about her rather than the fact that like here's a trans man and like what you know there was i expected there to be a point where they were going to have to have, like, this big heart-to-heart, like, confessional. And, you know, there's a moment where Benjamin's like, so I am not the daughter that my mother wanted me to be. I am my own man. And Remembers is like, yeah, I know. Like, moving on. (laughs) There's also that brief moment after Remembrance says that, that Benjamin reflects on, like, feeling relieved Mm -hmm. to be understood and accepted. By someone whose understanding and acceptance he very much wants. But also feeling like a little disappointed that she already knew. And yeah, it doesn't destroy their relationship. It doesn't cause, right? Like that's a, that's a point of reflection for Benjamin. And, I, and it doesn't go farther than that. And it's just grounded way of storytelling that you don't often see in romance novels period like i think heartbeat braves was also a very grounded form of storytelling and i think you and i naturally or i at least and i drag you um by the scruff through these like very baroque yeah there's you're definitely (laughs) dragging me through the proposal (laughs) Teresa denny's right type romance novels and they are a pleasure but like there is so much um shade and uh variant to what a romance novel can be and what i also found super refreshing about this is that it seemed to not be talking down to its readership for sure we've talked about this in the past that romance seems to have like taken up this mantle of being pedagogical like it has to teach you something or it's not doing its job yeah exactly like constantly insisting that it's not a pedagogy like we're not going to desire fabio just from reading these books right like we're not going to be one we're n- we don't want to be raped by a pirate just because we read 60 books a year that involve being raped by a pirate and then at the same time yeah has taken up this mantle of being like, well, I need to talk, explain to my audience why voting matters. Yeah. And all of my main characters are dyed in the wool uh, abolitionists and uh, suffragettes. (laughs) So one of the things I found really refreshing is that Benjamin is not a political person. And Remembrance is. And I think we... I like a a story where a trans man's very existence doesn't have to be political. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I I think that's lovely. And then I also think it's nice, in order for Benjamin's story to be valid, he doesn't need to be a spokesperson. 
That's so good and something that I was circling in my own feeling about it because they have this interesting conversation about legacy. And since they're both into handicrafts and Morgan, as you said earlier, that Remembrance doesn't see her handicraft work as the major part of her legacy. She's She really wants to move into this political organizing space where she can either get all of the crafty women of New York to form a society or what feels like a proto-union to then support... I think we should say artisans. Artisans, thank you. Um, <laughs> the artisans, who all happen to be women, uh, so that they can then help organize and support the mill workers who are going to go on strike for better conditions and better wages. And so she is envisioning her legacy and her importance as part of that movement. And her artisan work in quilt making is less. And the book even says that the the skills that she teaches with her hands to her workers and the fact that they'll teach that to other artisans is part of her legacy. And she has this moment of reflection, as you beautifully said. And she asks Benjamin what what a good legacy for him would be. Like, what would leaving his mark mean? And he has this lovely answer about, I would like it if somebody just continued enjoying a coffee pot that I made or even just a spoon. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just such a discussion of like different kinds of ambition and like different kinds of public facing where it really just doesn't seem to matter to Benjamin in the same way that it matters to Remembrance about like this idea of legacy or forward momentum. Like he just really wants somebody to use one of the spoons that he made. And even if like, you know, and that it would have this like particular kind of beautiful utility. And and like that was enough. And I <laughs> I loved that for him. And it then immediately evoked all of the the simple sentences where he's just holding Georgiana's baby or like quieting the baby or like, you know, pouring the tea. And in all the ways that like Benjamin is leading a life of quiet love and doing the things that Benjamin likes to do. And isn't that nice? And then you've got Remembrance, who's a little bit of a firebrand and a little bit like, I want people to know that I was here in this particular kind of way. And Benjamin's like, that's nice for you. I will I will be happy to support you in that. I also find that like Remembrance's journey is, and I, I hesitate to say journey because I, I think she's pretty clear on at least this point from the moment we meet her but the fact that like when we talk about labor and we talk about work and even when we talk about reform in our own time we still center work as such a determinant of identity I think it's so important that so important that remembrances identity is also what she does outside of her job and that she's intentionally thinking about that it's related to it Mm -hmm. but not totally she's not totally defined by like a calling (laughs) and i i think that's another way that this text is like really refreshing because i i think if you are a professional writer that's probably a calling and it might be hard to understand that not everyone feels that way about how they make a dime. And so having that kind of imp- that kind of empathetic view, I think is, well, not necessarily empathetic view, but just having that kind of broader view of people's, how people relate to their labor uh, is pretty rare, I think, in a romance. Like everyone's about to, everyone is fully prepared to die for whatever job they have. At, like, the cupcake bakery or the tattoo shop or, you know. <laughs> it's because nobody ever understood them and that this was their dream. And I think it's right yeah, to say that this book does a really good job of being, like, the thing that you do to feed yourself isn't necessary. The, fe- the thing that you do to feed yourself physically isn't necessarily the same thing that you do to feed yourself spiritually or culturally or otherwise. Yeah. Like, Benjamin gets a lot of, uh, you know, they, they enjoy their work. Mm-hmm. But she's got other remembrance has other stuff going on. Benjamin has other stuff going on. And isn't that nice? So with all that said, what was your weirdest part? You know, my weirdest part is uh honestly the names. I 
was close to being my sexiest part. <laughs> I was when I first met Remembrance, I was like, oh, are you a Quaker? And then she's not. And then her um, lo- her original love interest that broke her heart was named Ho. But I'm like, Quaker? No. And then uh, <laughs> Benjamin's sister. No, everybody had virtue names. Right. Charity, uh, the niece. But virtue. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but Benjamin's nephew isn't a virtue name. Uh, his name is Eli. And so then I was like, well, why do they all have virtue names if they're not Quakers? And like, I don't know, that part, that was like, that was my first and pretty much only stumbling block. Everything else was just like, I was, I was definitely on that apple cart. I love those kinds of names. And I be weary of what I'm about to say, because as you well know, I always bet on losing dogs. Okay. But I think the next baby name surge is going to be things like virtue honesty like those uh those virtue names like the old old fashioned remembrance i think remembrance and constance are definitely going to crack the top 20 in our lifetimes again for sure i don't know about charity or honesty but i i i don't think you're wrong purity I don't think you're wrong. I think we're we've 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 come as articulate far as we can go on the nature themed names. Yeah, and like the the uh, naming kids after their grandparents. Yeah, I think we, generational names. Those are kind of wrapping up. I think. I think it's gonna be. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's gonna be those uh, value names. Um, I love them. I've I've become really fond of reading those names. Uh, if you like that kind of thing, you sh- should be more into Amish romance. Just a hot tip for anyone who related to me when I said that. Watch out for the white supremacy. Definitely stay for the virtue names. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, hey, in all times, in all ways, watch out for white supremacy. Good point. Good point. Uh, it's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it really is everywhere. What was your weirdest part? My weirdest part was the way that remembrance frames the idea of friendship as oppositional to something like a romantic marriage. And so when she's, remembrance goes and visits her sister and there's this really lovely exchange where she talks about hope with her sister without explicitly talking about the nature but it, of their relationship or like stating outright that it was romantic. But she says something along the lines of like, I don't really want to marry because I always thought that when I married, it would only be worthwhile if it could be a friendship like I had with Hope. And at first I was like, oh, that's like double entendre. It wasn't. Like later on... <laughs> She's talking with Benjamin and she says, you know, she talks or she's like self-reflecting. It's before she's it's before the end of the book. So she's I think she's self-reflecting and she's thinking about how she had like settled with the idea that she would never get married because you can't marry like friendship and marriage are like impossible. And, you know, is this courtship going to lead to marriage she should clarify probably with Benjamin that she doesn't want like a marriage. She wants friendship. Um, and then she does share that with Benjamin and he's like, I want a friend. I guess he's like super into it because then he kisses her. <laughs> he wants a friendship too. But like the idea that um, it's just like all the other examples of relationships around this book are they do seem to be affectionate marriages. I guess the only other one is Georgiana and her husband. They're super affectionate. I understand like propriety still exists in this strata, this social strata in this historical moment, but it doesn't seem like you would be like as limited in your marital options or as controlled in your marital options. And so it seems like marrying for love at least marrying for affection would be pretty normal. So this, maybe friendship, now that I'm talking through it, maybe friendship was like a double entendre for like some kind of idea of around equality. I think it was because when Benjamin referred to her as a colleague, she was surprised and then 
very surprised by how pleased she was, where it's like, a man has never said this to me before. I like it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think you're exactly right, where because she hasn't been witness to a society where men and women are equals at all and hasn't seen marriages where that's functioning. She doesn't know the Flemings that well, I guess. And who knows how their equality breaks out. Yeah, I I don't think, I think you're right to say that she didn't understand that there could be equality between men and women. And then she meets Benjamin and Benjamin treats her like an equal right off the bat. What about your sexiest part? Oh my God, obviously it was that amazing, electrifying hand-holding with their uh, matching and different calluses intertwining from their work. Oh my God, I just couldn't even. And and, and this book made you wait so long just for them to touch hands. (laughs) It's, It's a really delightful slow burn where like, very little sp- like if if we consider like in a physical contact of any kind as like a spark in a slow bird i think there's like two yeah in 105 pages before they finally kiss it was amazing honestly like this is the the whole book is the sexiest part for me like, it's just incredibly tingly from beginning to end it was it's yeah what was your specific sexiest part Okay, one candidate would be, since that's taken, is when they go to her workshop for the first time and they're looking at, like, she's showing him around her workshop Mm -hmm. and he stands really close to her. And it's one of those just noticing, just, like, paying attention to someone. We talk on this show a lot about being, like, seen by someone else as being... And I think oftentimes, like, being seen is be, – what we really mean is, like, being seen the way you feel, <laughs> like, having having that affirmed. But there's something very erotic and just, like, looking, like, right, I feel like talks about, like, lines around, you know, the forehead, and I feel lines around my forehead tingle, right? There's almost an ASMR experience from it as a reader, but I think there's also something about being interesting enough to be gazed at deeply that doesn't really have to do with like being beautiful, but just being fascinating. There is a particular kind of pleasure. I love that gaze that you should you should trademark that because one of my big contenders for uh, sexiest part was at the botanical lecture where he catches sight of her and like keeps like trying to hold her in his gaze and she's not looking up he just notices like how she's taking notes and like how she's handling the book and like how her hair is resting on her neck and like how the little furrows from her glasses are like forming on her skin and he's he's it's just the pleasure of your I mean you just there's no better way to say it the pleasure of the gaze at like being valuable enough to warrant that kind of close attention is a pleasure in and of itself not to be too twee about it but that moment just like felt extremely Eddie Redmayne to me where it's just like some little goofball just like catches sight of the person that he likes across the room and can't stop looking at her I was like you're adorable I love everything about this I, I will ask that you refrain from writing real person fic <laughs> on the show <laughs> like cite the specific source and use Eddie Red- Redmayne's character name please <laughs> Okay, so it would be the source, the the Newt Scamander from the first of the Harry Potters, where he's like kind of yeah. always has his head at a weird angle, um, but especially when he's gazing at what's her face, the American. Thank you. You're welcome. I haven't seen that. Thank thank you for using the. I feel I had a lot of fun when I was reading this book, noting times that I was like, it's just like today. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, Benjamin really likes poetry. And then Remembrance doesn't know the name of like some who he thought was like super popular poet. 
And it's like, she's never heard of Green Day before. (laughs) Then they talk about how uh, wages on shipping docks were paid partially in liquor. Mm -hmm. And then everyone gets mad at the working class for like drinking too much. It reminded me of kegs at offices. Yep. Where they're like so mad about like productivity now that we're working from home. But they literally had like ping pong tables and snack platoons. And then like when they both just happen to go to that botanical society lecture. It's like they're both into watching really weirdly specific nature documentaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, discovering that about each other was just you know so fun yeah and also so just like they're wandering around a proto new york city um at you know columbia university and like going to these lectures and going to the park and all of those pieces were just just a delight feels like the world was like so much smaller like the the world in this book is smaller but with a lot more open possibilities i think than a lot of contemporary romances give us and I think that's one of the reasons it's cozy I think it is too and it also made me think of something really specific you said it earlier where you know obviously working class folks can have joyful and lovely lives and it isn't all just drudgery and like you don't have to be a secret Rockefeller that's revealed at the end when your grandfather shows up and is like you like trains yeah Uh, that there's something really lovely. And I think that this book reminded me when I was thinking about it is the same kind of thing where it's like Benjamin doesn't have a political project around being trans. It just is his life. And one of the things that in our own moment where people are like, where are all these trans people coming from? And it's like not historical and whatever. And it's like, well, it is. And part of the reason that we don't have histories of trans folks living normal lives where they make beautiful spoons and just love and live and laugh is because the Nazis burned the famous library where those stories and those histories were kept in Germany. It was one of the first things that they did in 1933 when they took power. And that the way in which we conceive of history is largely informed almost exclusively by how it was passed down and who kept what. And that, like, these kinds of stories did exist and just, you know, because we didn't get them in the same way that we should have doesn't mean that they weren't there. And I think the story does such a beautiful job of just saying, no, it was this and it was simple and it was lovely. There's also, I think, we assume that if we have a regressive ideology that it's not new mm-hmm. and or an ideology that we see is regressive, right? Because I don't think anyone who's like anti-trans would be like, I'm regressive. Some would, but like, you know, I think we tend to think of it as uh, not new, but trans history could have gone a different direction if not for, you know, it's argued that there wasn't really a movement to pathologize trans people until the 1890s around the time that there was a movement to pathologize everything because of eugenics. Mm -hmm. There are stories of, uh, that we do have in America of trans men and women, um, living lives as normal, right? Like Benjamin getting married to the people that they chose to marry of the opposite gender identity, obviously. <laughs> but but still, you know, having lives, being noted as someone who whose um, state of being was different from what their ob- assigned sex was, right? Mm-hmm. In Western culture. I think people th- want to believe that, like, regressive ideologies are old because you don't want to think... Like, it's one thing to be like, oh, grandpa was born into this world. <laughs> it's another thing to think, like, grandpa made this world. Mm-hmm. That's a lot harder to confront. Yes. And I think it's also, like, you want to... <laughs> it feels more encouraging that, like, you can create the world anew rather than how do we get back? Mm-hmm. Not that like it was like perfect or like I would go into, if someone gave me a time machine, I'd be like, I want to be trans in 1830 New York City. Like, no. But I th- things change. H- history isn't that linear, right? And there are people who actively just 
expecting things to resolve because they're linear is, is very dangerous thinking, right? Like believing like a futurity is a fix is not truthful. Correct. And I think we want to believe that because that would be really convenient. <laughs> it would demand less of us. It would demand less of us, yeah. But instead, we got to go vote. Tuesday's election day. By the time this comes out. Hopefully you'll have casted, cast your ballot. Because you're not going to get another chance. <laughs> There's always a new chance. Always, if you don't vote, vote the next time. But I was happy to be in this space for uh, my anxiety before the midterms. This felt good. <laughs> Yeah, uh, reading it on your phone doesn't help because you get all the texts, but they've been crazy this time around. Um, but Womance or No Man's? Womance. Everyone I know should read this. This ticks so many boxes. It's thoughtful. It has a non-dukedom historical, right? Working class historical. Um, it's, it's wonderful. That's a total woe. It's 105 pages. You can't afford not to read it. Don't sleep on it. Um, sleep under it like a big, comfy, cozy quilt. Correct. With some flannel bricks. And a beautiful coffee service with a silver spoon. Anything else you want to say? No, this was a delight. Thank you so much. I can't re- wait to read our other novella for November. I know, our other <laughs> November novella. Well, with that, loosen your stays. But never your principles. Wooly guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time. <laughs>